Well, today is part three of our series on the book of James. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 2. That's where we're going to hang out today, James chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me just uh, do a little bit of recap of what we've talked about so far. So if you remember, this is the James that was the half-brother of Jesus. This is not the disciple James. This is Jesus' half-brother who became a follower of Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. And if you remember, I told you that James was the pastor of the early church there in Jerusalem. So keep in mind, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they were following Judaism, and that's what you know, most people were doing. But then all of a sudden, this, this Jewish carpenter comes on the scene, this guy by the name of Jesus, and he's claiming to be God, and he's claiming that he has the power to forgive sin, that if you kill him, that he'll come back to life, and he'll prove that he's really God. And all those things actually happen. And so many of the Jews there in Jerusalem, they actually convert from Judaism to what we now today call Christianity. And so that's all going on, but a great persecution arises after Jesus' resurrection against these early followers of Jesus there in Jerusalem. And so we're about now 14, 15, 16, 17 or so years after Jesus' resurrection that James, this pastor, he decides he's going to write a letter to his congregation because many of them had to flee Jerusalem just for fear of their own lives. And so he's, he's writing this letter out, and he starts out in a very interesting way. We looked at it back in week one of the series. He says, my brothers and sisters, he says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking for anything. And so basically his message was, look, hard times, adversity, and trials, and in their case, persecution is going to come our way as followers of Jesus. But that's okay, because if you'll just persevere through that, through that time of testing, then you're going to become mature and complete and not lack for anything. And I encourage you with the exact same thing, that no matter what's happening in your life right now, God is still in control, and you can consider it pure joy. Yes, you don't understand it all, but consider it pure joy, because if you'll just persevere, he's going to bring you right through the whole thing. So what we've talked about in the series is that James, he, he tends to like lump two words together. So week one, it was all about testing and persevering. Last week then, the two words that he puts together is listening and doing. He's basically saying, look, you can't just listen to God's word. You can't just hear God's word. You've got to be a doer of God's word as well. And he said, if you're not actually doing what it is that you're hearing, like in sermons or as you read your Bible, you know, doing devotionals, whatever, he says, if you're not doing that, you're just deceiving yourself and your faith is basically useless. Now, today he's going to pick up on that same theme and sort of expand it a little bit more. And what he's going to do is he's going to talk about the contrast between faith and works. And I mentioned this to you back in week one of the series. There's a little bit of controversy when it comes to the book of James because a lot of people go, whoa, 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 James is putting like a heavy, heavy emphasis on our good deeds, the works that we do. And people go, wait, aren't we saved by grace? Aren't we saved by Jesus and what he did on the cross? And so there's this whole like sort of controversy, this debate of does James even belong in, in Scripture? And I shared with you that, well, yeah, he, he does belong there. Because what Paul and others are talking about is how are we saved? What does that look like? How, how do we have our sins forgiven? But James puts this emphasis on, okay, what happens after you're saved? And that's why we need to do these good works. But again, great theologians through the years, they've debated about this whole thing of what is the balance between faith and works? Uh, of what does that look like? 
And so, uh, again, many great theologians have, have talked about this through the years. So I got a couple of them. They're going to put it on the screen for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this. He said, faith without works is not faith at all, but a simple lack of obedience to God. Another great theologian and pastor, Charles Spurgeon, he writes this. He says, faith and works are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. He that is without faith is without works, and he that is without works is without faith. Another great theologian, C.S. Lewis, also a great author, he writes this. Regarding the debate about faith and works, it's like asking which blade and a pair of scissors is most important. That's really good, isn't it? Another great theologian, Gilbert Dennis Thurston III, he says this. We don't do good works because we're trying to be saved. We do good works as proof that we are saved. Remember Sesame Street? There was that thing of one of these things is not like the other. Out of those four quotes there, one of those things is not like <laughs> the other. So whether it's actual great theologians or what I'm saying, the, the thing is we have to have both. It's faith and it's works as well. This is an important topic, and, and James is going to address this. Look at James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? These two questions here that James asks, basically what C.S. Lewis was talking about, which blade on a pair of scissors is most important? The answer is, they're both important. We need both blades. So here's what I want you to remember. Our salvation, our forgiveness, our ticket to heaven, that is based on faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, of what he did on the cross. But we got to look at that other blade as well. Before we do that, let's look at what Paul says about faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done so that none of us can boast about it. So again, very, very clear here. Salvation, the forgiveness of your sin, comes when you put your faith and your faith alone in Jesus. It's not you and your good works. It's in Jesus alone. But what I always say, and, and what I quoted myself there earlier, is your good works then are proof that you're saved. It's proof that you've put your faith in Jesus. And so James says, look, if you've truly accepted Jesus in faith, the natural byproduct is going to be a life that's changed, where your good works are going to be evident to all. That life isn't about you anymore. That you now have given your life fully to Jesus and you're becoming more and more like Jesus and that you're saying, you know what? I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve other people. And so now you're giving your life up for others. Jesus gives some great insight into this. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount says this, Watch out for false prophets. They dress up like sheep, but inside they are like wolves who come to attack you. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way that they act. 
can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree producing bad fruit will be chopped down and burned. Thus, in the same way you can identify a tree by its fruit, so too you can identify people by their actions. By their what? By their, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is making it very, very clear here. If you call yourselves a follower of Jesus, the fruit in your life is going to be very, very evident. By your fruit, you will be recognized whether you truly have faith or not. Basically, all of our words, all of our actions, all of our lives need to be a reflection of the decision that we've made to follow Jesus. By your fruit, you'll be recognized. Now, this whole thing is one of the reasons, and there's multiple reasons, but this is one of the reasons I always tell you guys, don't call me Pastor Gilbert. And here's what I've shared with you before. An apple tree doesn't need a sign on it that says, I'm an apple tree. An orange tree doesn't need a sign on it that says, I'm an orange tree. A cherry tree doesn't have to have a title. Look at me, I'm a cherry tree. No. By its fruit, you will recognize it. And it should be the same for us as pastors. You don't become a pastor just because you're given a title. You're a pastor because you hopefully have fruit in your life that others see and they recognize it. And they say, all right, I want to follow your example just as you're following the example of Christ. And so that's a decision that all of you have to make. And those of you watching online, am I the type of example that you want to follow? Now, I'm not perfect. So there's going to be times you go, nope, he's showing us not to do it. But for the most part, do you see the, the fruit in my life that you go, all right, that, that's somebody that we can trust, and, and we're going to follow after that in the same way he's pursuing after Jesus. And that's what uh, Paul talks about. That's what James is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about, that by the fruit of someone, you will know whether they are truly a follower or not. And it's going to be the same thing for you. You can call yourself a Christian until you're blue in the face. You can. I'm a follower of Jesus. Why? Well, because that's what I call myself. I'm a follower of Jesus. All right, but what about your fruit? Is there evidence of that decision that you've made? Is there evidence of what you're calling yourself? Again, you can call yourself a Christian, but can we see your fruit or not? Now, I know some of you are going, but Gilbert, isn't that judging others if we do that? Didn't Jesus say not to judge? Well, yes and no. Jesus told us not to judge unbelievers. That's not our job. That's his job. You know who we are called to judge? Each other. Followers of Jesus are called to judge one another. If we want to put it in the perspective of what we're talking about so far today, we are called as Christians to be fruit inspectors. We are to inspect the fruit of other people, and we should call it out. If we see that people aren't living for Jesus in the way that they should, then we need to call that out. Now listen, not all trees are going to produce the same kind of fruit, and not all trees are going to produce the same amount of fruit. 
but what should be evident is that there is fruit in your life that you've made this decision to follow Jesus and that it's changed you, it's transformed you, that people were able to go, wow, there's something different about you. See, I'm completely convinced that so many people that call themselves a follower of Jesus are exactly like their unsaved neighbor. They're exactly like their unsaved family members. They're exactly like their unsaved coworkers. The only difference is they show up to a one-hour church service once a week. Showing up or tuning in does not make you a Christian. Faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that has transformed you so that other people go, wow, there is something different about you. That's when you know you're truly saved. Now again, let me quote myself. We don't do good works to try to be saved. Our good works are proof that we really are saved. Does that make sense? That's how faith and works work out. Faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. But the proof, the proof you did that shows up then in your works. James goes on, he gives a couple examples of what this may look like. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, suppose you see a what? Suppose you see a a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say, Goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing? What good does that do you? So I had you note there that he's saying, if you noticed a brother or sister, who's that referring to? Not everybody. Who's it referring to? Just followers. If you see a fellow follower of Jesus, a brother or sister in Christ, and you see that they're in need. And, and, and here's the thing. We, we can't help everybody in the world, every Christian around the world. We can't help everyone. So as we look not only at what James is writing, but the context of other writings of the New Testament, we see that our local church family, those that we choose to be a part of this family, and in our case, Exponential, if you see someone at Exponential and they are struggling, food, clothing, shelter, whatever it is. It's our job to help them. Not Gilbert's job, it's our job. Why? Because Gilbert isn't the church. We are the church. And so we're to rally around people. Now, here's the thing you need to realize, and maybe you don't, you don't understand this. Every single week, I get at least a couple phone calls and at least a couple emails from people in the community begging for money. Right? Now, our heart would be we want to help everybody. But you know who first priority is? It's you. It's you guys. That's our first priority. Is, is there need amongst the family here that we have? And one of the nice things about life groups is a lot of times your needs don't even make it as far as to me that we have to like take it out of the general church budget. Because you guys love one another enough that you go, hey, there's somebody in my group and they have a need. Let's all pitch in and let's help with this need. That's what a church family is to be about, that we rally around each other. Because, again, what good is our faith if we're all just going, yeah, we're all on our way to heaven. And then we see one of our brothers or sisters and they're hurting and we can't help them. So that's priority one is, is you guys. And then we go outside of, like, then to your sphere of influence. That's sort of the next priority. It's very, very rare that we just randomly give 
uh, to someone because there's enough needs amongst us and, and amongst, you know, the, the people uh, that, that, that we know and that we're trying to reach out for Jesus. But James says, look, if, if you're not helping your brother or sister, what good does that do you? Are you really a, a follower or are you just a follower in name only? He says, if you're truly a follower, then you're going to want to help people. You're going to want to serve people. Verse 17, he says, so you see, faith by itself, it isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and it's useless. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I want you to imagine somebody walks up to you just sort of randomly and they're holding a fish. That's sort of odd. Just holding a fish. And they keep shouting for everybody to hear, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! And you're looking at it and you're thinking, doesn't look alive to me. I mean, this is a, a hot day. We're in downtown Harrisburg. I mean, you know, maybe you came right from the river and maybe it's still alive, but I, I, I don't know. It, but yet this person keeps insisting, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! So you lean in a little bit more, you're squinting, like looking for even the most minuscule sign that there's any life in this fish. But yet this person keeps going, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. Eventually you've got to look at them and in love go, it's not alive, it's dead. And that's what James is talking about here. Many people are going, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Why? Because, because I call myself that. I'm alive in Jesus. James is saying our job is eventually to go, mm, no, doesn't really look alive to me. Looks like your faith is dead doesn't look like you actually have faith at all. There's absolutely no signs of life in your faith. Verse 18. James knew how you would sort of push back on that. He says, now, some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Essentially what James is saying here is, imagine this scenario. Somebody said to you, you have to prove to me that you are really a follower of Jesus, but you are not allowed to talk about any of your good works in proving to somebody that you're really a follower of Jesus. Think you could do it? Think about it. Could you prove that you're really a follower of Jesus but you're not allowed to talk about any of your good works. Some of you going, I could do it. I could do it. Because I would talk about my belief in that there's one true God. And he is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in the Son, he came to the earth, God in the flesh. And, and Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that my sins could be forgiven so that I can spend eternity with him forever. And you would say, that is me proving that I'm actually a follower of Jesus. 
Well, it's almost like James was setting us up, because look at what he says next. Verse 19, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. What James is saying is, even the demons get doctrine right. What is doctrine? It's the right beliefs. Even the demons have the beliefs that God is the one true God. Even the demons know who Jesus is and what he did. And we read here, James says, they know how holy God is. It causes them to tremble in fear because they know how holy he is. But yet, what is the fruit of a demon? The steal and the kill and to destroy. So it's not about just having the right head knowledge, giving intellectual assent to certain facts about Christianity that, oh yeah, I believe in God and I believed in Jesus and that he rose again from the dead. It's more than just that. James says the demons have that. At some point, that has to translate into real faith. Demons have the right beliefs, but the wrong practices. James says, great that you have faith, but please show me that your works are in alignment with your faith. Show me that your works are in alignment with the facts that you believe. Because if not, then your faith is useless. Now, if you think James has been hard on him so far, if you think that's been a rough message for you to hear, now he goes for the jugular. He's not done yet. He's just getting warmed up. See, James realized that the, the, the person that his fellow Jews revered more than probably anybody else was Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And so he decides he's going to use Abraham to demonstrate what he's been talking about. And so look at verses uh, 20 and 21. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, for those of you that maybe you're not familiar with this particular story, let me backtrack. So we're in the Old Testament here now, okay? So this is before there was such thing as the nation of Israel. There was this man by the name of Abraham, and God recognized that Abraham had faith and had trust in him. And so God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you and your descendants into a great nation. In fact, your descendants are going to be so numerous that as you look up at the stars of the sky or you look at the grains of sand on the seashore, you can't even count as many descendants as you're going to have because it's like trying to count the stars. It's like trying to count those grains of sand. So I'm going to make you and your descendants into a great nation. Here's the problem. Abraham and his wife Sarah, they didn't have any kids. In fact, they're really old. They're beyond childbearing age. And so the only way this is going to happen is for a miracle to take place. But guess what? God does a miracle. And Sarah is able to give birth to a son. His name is Isaac. Now all of a sudden, this, this promise of, to Abraham that, that me and my descendants, we're going to be made into a great nation. It can come true now. Isaac's now about a teenager or so, 
And God one day comes to Abraham and he says, I want you and Isaac to go off by yourselves and I want you to build me an altar. And I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac on that altar. Can you imagine Abraham's reaction to that? Wait a second, God. You said you're going to make me and my descendants into this great nation and you've blessed my wife and I with this miracle birth, this boy, Isaac. And now you want me to sacrifice him? But Abraham has faith in God. He trusts God in all ways. And so he says to Isaac, come on, we're going to go on a little journey here. And off they go by themselves. He says, son, let's build an altar for our God. They build the altar. Isaac's looking around, he's going, Dad, where's the sacrifice at? What what, what are we going to use as a sacrifice here? And Abraham, I'm sure, with tears streaming down his face, says, son, I don't understand it all. But you are the sacrifice. And he binds Isaac up and he places him on top of that altar. And again, I'm sure he's just bawling his eyes out. He, He takes the dagger. He lifts it up above his head, ready to plunge it into his son. And it's in that moment that Abraham says, or God says to Abraham, stop. There's the real sacrifice. And they see over in a thicket bush, there's a ram. And that's going to be the sacrifice. What faith Abraham had there. James talks about it then in verses 22 and 23. He says, you see his, meaning Abraham, you see Abraham's faith and his actions work together. He proved his faith was real by what he did. And the scriptures was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. If you want to be a friend of God, how many of you want to be a friend of God? Let me see right. You want to be a friend of God? You have to have faith and works. It's back to what C.S. Lewis was talking about. Which blade on a pair of scissors is most important? Well, they're both important. You need to have faith and you have to have works. Faith and works. Faith and works. And here's what you're going to find. The more faith you put in God, the more faith and trust you put in the Jesus the more that's then going to translate into the good works that you do. And the more good works that you do, the more faith you're going to have. And the more faith that you have, the more good works you're going to do because God is going to continue to stretch you and grow you to do more and more things for him on his behalf. And it's going to take more faith, and that leads to those good works. And by doing those good works, it leads to more faith, and it just keeps going. Faith and works, faith and works, like those blades on the scissors. That you need both in order to be most effective in this life that you have. And so here's my challenge to you. This week, this week, look for ways to put your faith into action. Practical ways. How can I put my faith into action? Now, here's why this is an important message for us at Exponential. I mean, anytime we're in God's Word, it's an important message. But specifically for us, here's why this is important. You remember last year, at the beginning of the year, we did a survey as a church called Reveal. 
and everybody individually sort of filled it out. And we couldn't see your individual results, but we got the collective results. And this is something that Reveal's been done by tens of thousands of churches all across America. And one of the, the, the cool things is that you get your report back that gives you some percentages, but then you also see where you fall percentile as compared to all the other tens of thousands of churches. And you know what? When it came to beliefs about God, about Jesus, you guys scored in the 90th percentile, or it was greater than actually, in the, but very, very high. So like you hear me and, and what I'm saying, and you're studying God's word for yourself, and, and intellectually, you're taking it all in. That's good, 90th percentile, we scored really high. When it comes to practices, we scored above the 90th percentile as well. Things like, do you read scripture every day? Uh, do you tithe? Do you, um, you know, uh, what was some of the other, pray, things like that. So the, the practices of what you personally are doing, we scored super, super high. You know where we scored in the 43rd percentile? is what we talked about today, actually putting your faith into action. We know a lot, and we're doing a lot for ourselves from the Word. But James says, even the demons do that. Even the demons do that. Eventually, we have to put our faith into action. What is faith in action? Sharing your faith with others. Opening your home up to others that aren't believers. Going and serving other people. Realizing that you have a ministry to do. That, oh, God has given me a ministry to do and I'm supposed to be doing that with my life. I'm not supposed to be trying to go after cars and houses and raises and bonuses and promotions and get my kids on the right soccer team or whatever. That's what the typical American does, and we are not to be like the typical person. So again, this is an important message for Exponential because, man, our beliefs are up here. What we do for ourselves is up here, but what we're doing for others to demonstrate our faith, we're missing half of the scissors. James says, man, Put your faith into action. Let's see some fruit of what's going on. So don't get comfortable. Don't get complacent. Look for things that you can do that's going to stretch and grow your faith. So again, this week, just practically look for ways that you can actually put your faith into action and pray that God gives you the courage to actually do something about it. Because I'm sure what happens is oftentimes you hear me preach this. And you go, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then like Monday rolls around or Tuesday rolls around and you have an opportunity to do something and the Spirit says, there's your opportunity. And then you go, mm, I'm a little busy right now. Or I'm being a little nervous to say something right now. Your faith must be put into action. So let's take some bold steps to be obedient to God and to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this day, and we thank you for this time that we have together in your word. We thank you that, Jesus, your, uh, your younger brother, James, he's uh, given us some hard truth here. And Lord, uh, even the message that I'm sharing today, it's some hard truth for us to hear. But Lord, you, you want us not to be deceived. You don't want us to just be fooling ourselves. 
And so, Jesus, help us to demonstrate that we have truly put our faith and trust in you by our lifestyle, by the words that we use, by the actions that we do, by the people that we serve, by how we give our money to help and benefit other people. Lord, we want the the fruit on our tree not to just be enough to nourish ourselves. We want the fruit on our tree to benefit our community, to benefit our nation, to benefit our world. And so, Lord, help us to just stop calling ourselves Christians and help us to actually be Christians. And the character and the conduct of Jesus help us to be each of all that. As we see those character attributes of Jesus, help us to become like that. As we see the, the conduct that he did, that his faith in action, help us to become that as well. Jesus, help it, help us not to make life about ourselves, but to become more like you and make life about others. So, Lord, I pray this week that your spirit would nudge each and every one of us. Go talk to this person. Go serve this person. Open your home up to this group of people. Whatever it may look like, God, have us be obedient to whatever your spirit is nudging us with. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness to truly put our faith into action, to be that second blade on that pair of scissors so that we can be most effective in spreading and proclaiming your word to a lost and hurting world and a lost and hurting community that we have right here. So help us to be your hands and feet and help everything that we say and do bring glory and honor to you as we produce fruit for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.